Hi, everybody. How are you? Have you ever felt like you're in a spot in your life that you simply cannot get out of? The same thing keeps happening over and over and over again, like this perpetual Groundhog Day. You echo the words of the great theologian Bono who once said, you've got to get yourself together because you got stuck in a moment and you can't get out of it. Have you ever, have you ever felt like that? I tried to imagine what kind of image would convey this best, and the only one that I could really find that did it justice was courtesy of my good friend Clark W. Griswold. So this is what the circle, the cycle looks like. Take a look. Have you ever had one of those days? Have you ever had one of those periods of life where over and over again it seems like you keep getting hit in the face? It's a cycle. Today we're in the section of the Bible, and the book is called Judges. And I've got to tell you, Judges, the best way to describe the book of Judges is that it's one big, hot, stinky mess. There's not a whole lot of encouraging stuff that happens in the book of Judges, but what we find in there is the root of the problem of the Old Testament. And actually we find there the root of the problem of all humanity, and that is this. We get stuck in this cycle of bad choices and bad decisions and bad circumstances, and it keeps flying around and around again and smashing us in the face. Now, the book of Judges starts at the end of the book of Joshua, which we covered last week. And so really at the end of Joshua, things are... Things are actually going fairly well. They're coming into the promised land. They're going into the place that God had promised them. And they've, they've covenanted, they've promised, the Israelites have promised God that they're going to follow him. They tell Joshua this. They said, then the people answered, far be it from us to forsake the Lord to serve other gods. It was the Lord our God himself who brought us and our fathers up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed great signs before our eyes. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. They have covenanted and promised. We are going to serve him. We are going to get back in his good graces. This is a great time for Israel. It's sort of like 2005 and 2006 around here in Chicagoland. I mean, think about it. The Sox won the series. That's a good time. You can clap if you want. The Bears were in the Super Bowl. It was a good time. The Cubs were wearing uniforms and playing baseball. It was a good time. Everything is happening as it should be, kind of, because what happens in the book of Judges is we begin to see a pattern, a cycle come around. This is what it looks like, just to show you a little graphic of what happens. Israel serves the Lord, and then they kind of get tired of him. And so they turn their backs on him and they walk away and they're captured by other nations and brought into slavery. They start to go to these other nations and worship other gods other than the God who has saved them and rescued them. And so they get in these horrible spots and they have to cry out to God and he rescues them, brings them back to where they should be, and then they serve the Lord again. And then the cycle just continues, continues. Out of 330 years covered by the book of Judges, 110 of them are lived in peace. 110 out of 330 is lived in peace in the land God has promised. And here's why. In Judges chapter 2, this is what God says to them. I brought you up out of Egypt. I led you into the land that I swore to give your forefathers. I said I will never break my covenant with you. And I shall never make a covenant with the people of this land. But you shall break down their altars. Yet you have disobeyed me. Why have you done this? I brought you to this place. I did everything you could possibly want. I brought you into this spot, and now you've turned your backs on me. Why have you done this? And this is where we learn our first big lesson about the book of Judges. And that's this, is that Israel chooses the mess because they don't think that God 
is enough. The root of their problem and the root of our problem is we get to the point where we stop believing that God is enough to handle what we're facing in our lives. We get tired of God. We get tired of the way that maybe he set forth for us. It's just a little bit too difficult and too hard. Look at the last question God asked them. Why have you done this? You have no reason to do this. The Red Sea, parting it, that wasn't enough. The manna and the quail, that wasn't enough. Going through the Jordan at flood stage like last week, that wasn't enough. The falling of the walls of Jericho, that wasn't enough. Why have you done this? It's because they choose to believe that God isn't enough. And it's not so much a faith problem as it is a memory problem. They've simply forgotten all the things that God has done for them. In the Old Testament, there's a word, zakar, and that Hebrew word means to remember, and God uses it 222 times in the book. But primarily in the book of Deuteronomy, he commands Israel to remember. Why would he do that? Because they're so prone to forget. How do you forget the Red Sea? What happens is it's not enough. The present circumstances are too scary to believe that God is enough to handle it. They have spiritual amnesia that they've inherited from their granddaddies and grandmammies in the desert. And so God has to command them, remember, remember that I am enough for you. Now listen, I get it. I have a horrible memory. If I've forgotten your name from time to time, I really apologize for that. But I am that guy in Jewel who's on the phone. Did you say baking powder or baking soda? And where is that anyway? I can't for the life of me remember where that is in the store. I understand this memory issue. I get it. But the mess in the Old Testament and the mess in our lives comes from a cycle. And that cycle is an issue of remembering whether or not God is enough to take care of us. Now some of us are in the cycle today because of the choices of other people. I get that. Some of you, it's not your fault. Other people have done things and it has forced you into a spot where you're just suffering the consequences of what they've done. Let me tell you what. God is here for you. If that's where you are today, God is here for you. Psalms say this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. If you're suffering from other people's choices, if your cycle's because of others, God is here with you. But for most of us, it's not that. For most of it is that we have made the choice. And why we've made that choice, we don't know. Maybe it's because... It seemed like the right thing to do. Maybe it's because it was passed down to us by our parents or their parents or their parents. Maybe we just, we don't know any better. So as we enter into the book of Judges, we need to realize that Israel had a memory problem and they began to choose to walk away from God because they believed he wasn't enough. And this is what we hear at the very beginning of the story. Check this out. In Judges 2, and this is on page 103 in your story book. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, the first generation that was in the promised land, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. They forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who had brought them out of Egypt. Forsook means they decided that God was not enough, and so they turned their backs on him and followed other gods that they didn't knew who maybe were a little bit better. They chose to walk away. They chose the mess. So the question, the challenge we face today is, is God enough? Is God enough for what we're facing right now? Is God enough for what we're going through at this particular point in our lives? Because not choosing him gives us one other option, and that's to choose us. And I don't know if this is a newsflash for you, but we're not awesome. Our way is rarely the best way, and when we choose it, we usually end up stepping in mess. I love the way the writer of Proverbs says it. He says, as a dog eats its own vomit, so fools recycle silliness. Hope you haven't had breakfast. We return to our ways, which is basically like a dog going back to something they've already thrown up, and then we're mystified as to why there's such a mess. 
sometimes it's other people. I get it. But most of the times it's us. Most of the time it's just us recycling silliness. So what happens? God has a choice at this point, And what does God choose to do? Well, this is number two thing that we learn from the book of Judges. Is that God chooses to rescue us from the mess. What would God do with this mess that Israel has left him in the very beginning of Judges? This is what God would do, and this is in your book on page 104. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders, these nations that had occupied them. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge, and he saved them out of the hands of their enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord relented because of their groaning under those who oppressed and afflicted them. If you're having trouble with this Old Testament God, you look at him, you're like, he, he, that guy needs a little bit of fiber in his diet or maybe he needs to tone it down a little bit. You see God is up there in heaven chomping on antacids waiting to just smite us whenever anything bad happens. Take a look at that last phrase in that passage. It says the Lord had compassion on them. When they cried out, he answered. So if you're in the midst of a self-inflicted mess today, I want to tell you, look at what it says here. It says, whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was with the judge. It's not as if God kept his distance and said, when you guys get it figured out, I'll come and help you. He went into the middle of the mess, into the middle of the vomit with them and brought them out of it. So if you're in a self-inflicted mess today, this is the God we're talking about. This is the God who has promised that when you cry out to me, wherever you are, whatever has happened, I will come, I will chase you, I will rescue my children. And in this story, he does it via people called judges. Now, I was in Wichita, Kansas recently. Anybody been to Wichita, Kansas before? Nobody willing to raise their hands, fair enough. Um, and I was driving in Wichita with my friend Kevin, and we were at a conference. And so I'm trying to, after dinner, trying to find my way back to the hotel. And I'm driving, and I'm driving, and I, I'm like, oh, well, that street looks familiar. So I make a left-hand turn, and I'm driving. And then I'm like, well, that's really odd. All those stoplights are facing away from me. <laughs> and Kevin goes, in only the way Kevin can, he goes, dude, it's a one-way street. <laughs> so thankfully, there's no traffic in Wichita ever, and uh, no one's coming the other way, so I turn around, and I find my way back to going on the right way street, and I'm like, phew, okay, oh, that was good. So I find another street that looks familiar, so I turn onto that street and head up, and I'm driving, and I'm driving, and then I turn, and then I'm looking, and I'm like, why is that light facing away from me? And I looked at Kevin, and I said, I did it again! And then I came to a busy intersection, the only busy intersection in Wichita. And waiting at the stoplight was a police officer. Now it's dark, so headlights are shining this way when no headlights should be shining this way. They should all be going this way. And I'm like, this is it, we're dead. I'm getting pulled over in Wichita. You know, I'll never be seen again. Whatever's going to happen. And he just drove on by, and I felt this immense weight lifted off my shoulders. Now maybe when you hear the word judges, you think of police. You think of people who are coming to sentence people. Well, that's not the phrase. That's not the way that the judges were used in the Old Testament. The judges in the Old Testament were used not to sentence, but to save. The judges in the Old Testament were not used to punish, but to redeem and to bring Israel up out of where they had been. And so we begin with a judge named Deborah. Now, Deborah is an interesting judge because, well, she's a woman. And the scripture says that Deborah is a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, 
and was leading Israel at this time. So she has a position of leadership. She's a prophetess with a position of leadership, and she's in this spot. And God comes to her and he says, I want you to go and find a man named Barak. And I want you to find Barak, and I want you to commission him to do something for me. And so she goes to Barak, and she says, listen, the Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor, and I will give Sisera into your hands. Now, Sisera is the commander of the Canaanite army who has been beating on Israel for 20 years. Deborah is not somebody you want to mess with. Deborah is not somebody you want to say no to. Her name in Hebrew means bad mamma jamma. Not many people know that. <laughs> totally made that up. Wasn't that awesome? But so she goes to Barak and she gives him this. She said, listen, I'm the prophetess. I speak for God. This is a mail-it-in, no-brainer. This is the Bears versus Carolina at home. This is all you need to know is just to show up and blow up and watch God do what he's going to do. Now, guys, this isn't our highest moment in this book of Judges because here's what Barak's reply to her is. If you go with me, I will go. But if you don't go with me, I won't go. She says, show up, blow up. God's going to be there. This is a no-brainer. It's mailing in. He says, it's dark and I'm scared. <laughs> Will you hold my hand? And Deborah says, all right, listen, Pookie Bear, I'll go with you. But here's the reality. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you're taking, the honor will not be yours. The honor, the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Now for Barak, in this culture, when women are not highly valued, this is something he's just not prepared to accept. So Israel goes out under Barak's command and they whip the Canaanites. They just whip them completely and utterly. The army of Canaan is in retreat. They're taking off. The general Sisera is chased away. He's going to try to find a place to hide to save his skin. And so he comes upon this nice, quaint little tent in this little village with this little woman named Jael. Now we don't get Jael described to us, but I imagine her to be small, kind of soft-spoken. And listen to what she says to him. She says, come. Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, come my lord, come right in. Don't be afraid. So he entered her tent and she covered him with a blanket. I'm thirsty, he said. Battles tend to make people thirsty. Please give me some water. And she opened up a skin of milk, gave him a drink, and covered him up. Aw. Like you'd expect some cookies to be present at some point in this thing. And then, but Jael, Haber's wife, picked up a tent peg and a hammer and went quietly to him while he lay fast asleep, exhausted. And she drove the peg through his temple into the ground, and he died. Thank you for the and he died, because I was curious as to what happened next after that. <laughs> and so Deborah's prophecy comes true. The honor goes to a woman, and not Deborah, but Jael, who wields the hammer and the peg and says, Wah! <laughs> this little Martha Stewart with her designer milk flask goes hardcore on this guy's skull, and Israel wins the day. So what does Deborah and the Israelites do? Well, they do what we all would have done. They burst into song. It's like this Broadway meets Braveheart kind of thing where I could hear Queen doing the soundtrack. She drove a tent peg through his temple, and it was... It was this awesome moment of celebration for them. But this song was empowered because it was all about how God found us in the middle of this mess and he used this little soft-spoken lady to save us from Canaan. God is a God who steps into the middle of the mess. And this is an awesome, awesome thing, but 
then we see what happens next is that the people of Israel did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. And for seven years, he gave them into the hands of the Midianites. Forty years after this victory of Deborah, and then all of the sudden, Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. This is a total V8 moment. This is a face palm moment. Duh, why? When God has done these amazing things, would we do this again? So what is God going to do in this mess? Well, he raises up a judge named Gideon. And this is what it says about Gideon. The angel of the Lord came and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash the Abizarite. How about that? Where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press to keep it from the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. He's hiding. And the Lord says, I'm with you, mighty warrior. And Gideon's probably like, Mighty warrior. Oh, me. Oh, great. Not exactly mighty warrior material hiding from the Midianites. And again, God is stepping into this mess. He's going to find somebody and he's going to recruit someone who doesn't feel like they're capable enough or competent enough or, or even strong enough. And he's saying, listen, I promise I will be with you and I will lead you and you will lead my people out of bondage to Midian. Now, five times in Gideon's story, he asks the question, if, if you are with me, if you really mean what you're saying. And I know for some of us who are in the mess, it's hard not to ask the if question when you're in the middle of even a self-inflicted cycle, even a self-inflicted mess. It's hard not to say, if you really love me, why is this happening? If you're really with me, why am I so nervous? If you're really good, why are bad things happening at this moment in my life? So Gideon, I understand this. Gideon is okay with asking these if questions, but he asks the if questions at the worst possible moment. Look at what it says in Judges 6.36. He asks, If you will save Israel by my hand as you have promised. He asks if and says you promised. The place where Gideon is standing is called the promised land. How can he not believe God isn't going to keep his promises? The one thing that we can learn from the book of Judges is that God is a God who comes through and keeps his promises. Even when we test him, even when we question him, God comes through and says, I have promised I will be with you. So Gideon devises all sorts of tests. Even though God promised, he wants a receipt so if he can take it back later on if it doesn't work. So he said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to take a piece of wool. I'm going to stretch it out and I'm going to leave it outside overnight. And if the wool is wet and the ground's dry in the morning, I know you're going to do what you said you're going to do. So he does it and God does it. And he's like, cool. Okay, let's do it this way then. And at this point, it's like he's playing games. It's like, okay, I'm going to stretch out the wool again. This time, I want the ground to be wet and the wool to be dry. Okay, let's do it that way. And the next morning, God does it. He's like, all right, well, I'm, I'm running out of tests for you. Is God really going to come through? What is God going to do in this mess that he's in the middle of? So God promises Gideon again and again, I will be with you. I will give you victory. But first... God has a condition. And listen to what he says. He says, you have too many men. Gideon had 32,000 soldiers. God says, you have too many men. I can't deliver Midian into their hands or Israel would boast against me, saying my own strength has saved me. Does God know these guys or what? You can't go in there with that many soldiers. And again, come on, there's not such thing as too many soldiers. That's like saying there's too much bacon on this buffet. That's not a phrase that makes any sense. You've got too many soldiers. God knows that they're going to get egotistical and go, well, God is awesome, but we were really awesome. 
God's cool, but we were, we were really vengeant and vigilant. I had my face all painted up. It was awesome. It was us that did it. God said, you can't do that. So he cuts Gideon's military from 32,000 to 300. Now, what you need to know about the Midianites is the way they're described is it says they had so many camels, their camels looked like sand on a seashore. That's a lot of camels. That's a lot of spit. There's a lot of other stuff too, but they had so many camels that they carpeted the floor of the valley where Gideon was overlooking them. So 300 against the world. So what would happen? Here's what happens. As they stood around the camp, as they looked at what was going on, Gideon and the hundred men with him reached the end of the camp. And grasping the torches in their left hands and holding in their right hands the trumpets they were to blow, they shouted, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon! While each man held his position around the camp, the Midianites ran, crying out as they fled. Get this, they didn't touch a soul. They showed up and Midian freaked out. So much so that later on in the story, the Midianites begin killing each other. And God looks at Gideon and goes, how do you like that promise thing now? 300 versus the world, I got this. I got this. I am a God who keeps my promises. So if you're in the middle of the cycle, I will keep my promises. And so here's what we find out about the nation of Israel. It says that, thus Midian was subdued before the Israelites and did not raise its head again. Ah, that's good military terms for you. During Gideon's lifetime, the land had peace for 40 years. Which is awesome, right? But these are messy people. And so the next verse says, No sooner had Gideon died than the Israelites again prostituted themselves to the Baals. You don't get a more graphic word than that, do you? It's a verb. They opened themselves up in the most intimate way to accept in the deepest way another God other than the God who had rescued them, the God who had saved them. And so God raises up one last judge. And that judge is somewhat familiar to us. His name is Samson. Now Samson is, Samson is kind of an interesting character. I preached on him this summer during our Graceonomics series. So if you want to hear more about Samson, I'd say go back and check out that sermon. But Samson was the last judge, the last official judge, and he's chosen to be set apart to be something called a Nazarite. And Nazarites keep themselves from drink, they keep themselves from cutting their hair, and they keep themselves from dead bodies and blood and contamination. That's his whole job. And so God promises him, if you keep yourself from all of these things, I will use you in a mighty way and you alone will rescue Israel from the men who are captive, who you're captive to, the people of the Philistines. I will use you in ways you can't imagine. Now we don't know much about Samson. We don't know if he was huge. We kind of figured that he was. He was incredibly powerful. He wrestled and killed a lion with his bare hands. He used to take on groups of men all at once, 10 or 12 at a time. And he even pulled up the gateposts of a city and carried them 40 miles and stuck them on another hillside. He's a bad dude. He was one, he was one bad mamma jamma too. And God uses Samson, but most of the time he uses Samson in spite of Samson. Because Samson fully buys into the cycle. 
He gets involved in wine and women and song, and he loses himself in the cycle. And so God has to kind of work around Samson in order to use Samson. And finally, it comes down to a moment where God has promised him, if you keep your secret, if you keep your vow, I will keep you strong. And he meets this one girl, that one girl who changes everything, and her name is Delilah. Now, Delilah's name means temptress. So if you're looking to name your daughter that, I'd say don't. It's just (laughs) setting him up for failure. Um, And she catches his eye and she catches his attention and she woos him and she says, Oh, honey, tell me why you're so strong. And we guys like to talk about why we're so strong, don't we? And so he eventually gives up God's secret for Victoria's secret. That one always takes a while. (laughs) And he lets her in and he says, listen, I made a promise to God if I never cut my hair, I'll always be strong and he'll use me to save Israel. And so he falls asleep and she clips his beautiful braids. And when he wakes up, he's just like any other dude. The power of God has left him and the Midianite, or the Philistines rush in and they capture him and they shackle him. This huge, powerful man, they shackle him. They pluck out his eyeballs and they force him into prison, grinding grain for them. And then they bring him out of prison one day when they have this huge party and they decide, we need some entertainment. What do we got laying around? Oh, we got Samson blind down there in the dungeon. Let's go get him. And they bring him out and they make him walk around and stumble over things and they poke fun at him. And they begin to laugh at him and jeer at him. And Samson, in his anger, begins to raise up and rise up. And he finally says, listen, God, and this is what he says, Sovereign Lord, remember me, please. God, strengthen me just once more. And let me with one blow get revenge on the Philistines for my two eyes. And he positions himself at the main pillars of the temple and he pushes. And God gives him all the strength that he needs. And he collapses the entire temple on top of everyone. So Samson dies in the middle of this as well as everyone else who had been enslaving the Israelites. So he does what God has called him to do, but it doesn't end well. And as a matter of fact, the book of Judges from there just gets darker until here's the very last verse. In those days, everyone, Israel had no king, and everyone did exactly what they thought, exactly what they wanted to do. That sounds kind of similar, doesn't it? It sounds like today. We're kind of pursuing our own way in our own direction. And the darkness begins to settle in in this cycle. I mean, think about what has happened in this book. God takes 13 men, 13 judges, and rescues Israel. And these aren't little rescue attempts either. These are like me against the world, 300 against everybody. These are breaking the laws of physics kind of operations that God does to rescue them. And by the end, they said, we don't have a king. We're going to do whatever we feel like we should do. And it continues that cycle of brokenness and death and destruction. So what is God going to do? What they've decided and what we see in Judges is that for the Israelites, God is not enough. What we see in our own lives a lot of times when we're in the midst of the cycle is that God is not enough. I would choose him, but I just don't think he's enough to handle this. You can see from the story that we've been going through so far, up to this point, we've been designed to be in relationship with God, to be with him, to be content in him, to have him be all that we need, to be him being enough for us. But then we start making choices where we think we're upgrading gods. That God is great. We like him, but we want to upgrade our gods. How many marriages fail because of this? 
We'd like a better, an upgrade. This one's just not enough. How many addictions start there? We need a better buzz, a better way of being. How, many, how much debt comes from we need a better house, place, thing? How much of these decisions throw us into a cycle that is destructive? And it's all based on the fact that we think that we're upgrading. But the problem with Israel and the problem with us is not that we're upgrading, we're replacing. We think we're getting a better God, but we're actually replacing the one who's done everything for us with the one who's done nothing for us. We think we're getting a new iPhone, but instead we get the Android, which we know is going to hurt us and do damage to our life. <laughs> Maybe that's just me. <laughs> we come to the point and we come to the place where God has to be the only source of life for us. Because the new job God is not going to do it. The new marriage God is not going to do it. The new relationship God is not going to do it. The new hobby, tech piece, position of influence, house, neighborhood, diet, workout plan, Harley God is not going to do it for us. And so that question comes and says, is God enough? And how do I know this? Because I've, choos I've chosen the mess for myself before. I've chosen the mess instead of God. I've chosen not to believe that God is enough. But I also know that there's no one that backs up this promise better than he does. When it says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy burdened, I will give you rest. The cycle is exhausting. There's no peace there. We feel like we're constantly running and constantly dodging. There's no peace. There's no rest. And so God says, come to me and rest. Or as Paul says it, I've learned to be content in any and every circumstance. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And there it is. There's the key. The only way we're going to be satisfied, the only way we're going to walk out of the cycle of brokenness and death and destruction that we might be facing today is to trust the last judge the world ever needed. The final judge who would step into the middle of the mess, into the middle of the vomit, and drag the people out and renew, reunite them with God. This is what it says in the New Testament in Hebrews. I don't have time to tell you about Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice, and gained what was promised. Those guys are good, but these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Jesus, this last judge, shows us the way out of the cycle. So he says, follow me, be like me, come to me and get rest and I will lead you out of this place. I will show you that God is enough. I will prove to you that there's nothing else you ever need. You can be content in me and me alone no matter what's happening. So, fixing our eyes on Jesus the pioneer and the perfecter of our faith. We walk out of the cycle and leave it behind. We walk out of the mess and leave it behind saying, Jesus, you are enough. And that answers for us the age-old question, who will we trust? Who will we trust our lives to? We know we're not awesome. We know that left to our own devices, we would end up in the book of Judges as a footnote. Who will we trust our lives to today? Is God enough for us today? Or are we looking for a God replacement? The two men who founded Alcoholics Anonymous, Dr. Bob Smith and Bill Wilson, were visiting some people after they had developed their 12-step program. And they went to visit a man who was an attorney named Bill. And he had flunked out of several different addiction recovery programs. And so they went to visit this man and they started telling him about this new 12-step program that they had developed. And they began to tell him about how they had overcome addiction by trusting in a higher power. And he said, oh, no, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. Listen, it's too late for me. 
It's too late for me. I know. I still believe in God, all right. But I know mighty well right now that he doesn't believe in me. You see, the problem with the cycle and the problem with Israel in the cycle is they start to choose and say God is not enough, but some of us, we get stuck in the middle of it because we believe that God doesn't believe in us anymore. That we're so deep in our own vomit that God is not going to come after us, but that is not what Scripture teaches. This is a God who keeps His promises, and God's promises are, at that moment, when you're in the middle of the cycle, that's when I send the judge. God is not looking for people who have it all thought out and planned out. He's looking for people who know when to cry out and say, I am stuck and I can't get out of this on my own. Show me the way. I want to follow you out in the middle of this mess. And what I love is that this is happening here all the time. Yesterday, we had a seminar for something called Eve's Angels, which is a ministry that helps to rescue girls from stripping and prostitution and other things like that. And someone had come to this service last week and heard about this event that we were having. And she came yesterday. And she was a stripper. And she left that event yesterday morning and went to the strip club where she works and she cleaned out her locker and she left that life behind. God did not wait until she got it all together and said, now I'm ready for you. He said, I want you, while your stuff is still in that locker, cry out to me and I will take you out of the cycle of brokenness and death and destruction. So the question is for us, is God enough for our cycle today? Is God enough for us wherever we might be in the middle of this thing? Are we ready to acknowledge the mess that we've created? We're about to hear a song, and I would just invite you during this song to, to, if there's a mess going on in your life, if there's a cycle going in your life, name it. Courageously and faithfully name it, and know and pray and say, God, you are enough to rescue me from the cycle that I'm in. As we listen to this song, will you do that today? We're getting ready to take communion right now, so I ask the servers to get in the spots. It's interesting, this memory problem that Israel had that they'd forgotten who God really was. And, and throughout their life, they would constantly do that. Throughout the rest of the Old Testament, and you'll see as we go on through the story, they continuously forget to do that. And then Jesus comes, and, and Jesus rolls into place, and he begins teaching and leading. And at the end of his life, he gathers his disciples together in an upper room. And, and he sits down on this day, called Passover. And Passover is this big celebration for Israel where they celebrated being rescued from Egypt, from slavery. They celebrated a big act of God that they wanted to remember, and so they did it every single year. And so Jesus told, chose this moment on purpose. And he brings them into this room, and he sets them around the table, and he takes a loaf of bread, and he rips it in half, and he takes a cup, and he blesses it. And, and he tells them, listen, I want you to do this, and the phrase is haunting, do this in remembrance of me. Which is funny because if you've been around Jesus, you would think it would be difficult to forget that guy. I mean, you have a friend named Bob in high school. You forget about Bob. But Jesus, I mean, Jesus did amazing things in their sight. People who were dead came back to life. People who were blind started to see. You don't forget that, do you? Apparently you do. If you can forget the Red Sea, you can forget about Jesus. And so he says, every time you do this, do it in remembrance of me. And what's interesting is that is our setting. That's our foundation as a church for communion, what we're about to do. But he doesn't command them to do it every week. 
And yet the early church does it every week. Why would they do that? I think it's very simple. They don't want to forget. They don't want to forget this magical, mystical, powerful Jesus who stepped into their lives and ripped them out of the cycle of death and destruction and brought them to life and life to the full. So they did it not as a ritual, not as a religious thing. They did it so they wouldn't forget so that every time they ate the bread and drank the wine, they would know something happened that we cannot lose track of. So when we celebrate this every week, that's what we're doing. When we take the little piece of bread and the little cup of juice. We're doing that to remember that we don't have to live in the cycle anymore. That God dove in and rescued us when we were still sinners and brought us out. As the trays come across, there are two cups, one side the other. Please take both of them and hold them. We'll take communion together. You don't have to be a part of Parkview to take communion with us. If you believe in Jesus, we welcome you to this table. Let me pray for you. Father, for this meal that we're about to celebrate, for this moment where we are going to remember you and what you've done and how you stepped into our lives and those moments when someone up there was looking out for us are moments that we have to live as reminders that you are enough. And so convince us of that, persuade us of that as we cry out to you in this moment. Father, all these things we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.